Well, I would say if you asked people, what's your favorite verse in Scripture, or maybe in the tradition I grew up in, people would say, I, this is my life verse, and people have a, a certain verse of Scripture that matters to them and, and, and stands out that they go to. I would say, um, this was like, what's that game, Family Feud, where the guy always said, survey says? I would think that somewhere on the board, the survey would say Romans 8.28, which is, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Um, that is a good one. If you haven't memorized that or thought about that, or if it's been a while since you revisited Romans 8, for instance, uh, look at Romans 8.28. It's an easy one to memorize, and it's a, a handy one to have uh, just uh, for those times where things seems like things aren't working out. Well, the human writer of that verse of Romans is the same one who wrote Philippians. It's Paul. Um, he wrote this in, in prison. So let's pretend that uh, Romans 8.28, you're a journalist, and your job is to interview the human. We know that God is the ultimate writer of Scripture who breathed out uh, Scripture and, and, uh, and the people wrote it but the human writer. And so you're going to sit down with Paul. You're going to say, tell me the inspiration behind Romans 8.28. Uh, this is a good verse. It's helped many Christians, but can you personally say in your life that, there, that you've actually experienced this? All things work together for good. And you ask a really good-sounding question like that. I would say that, I have no idea what his response would be, but a valid response would be, Right here, he would recount what was going on in his life when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. In prison, all of his ministry, forward ministry going, and all of a sudden it comes to a grinding halt. And his heart is to be out there sharing the gospel. That's his calling. Uh, he's become a pretty good church planter and discipler, and he's keeping up with all these things, and all of a sudden, he's in prison. He can't do what he did. And for many people, it would seem like ministry stopped. I called my mentor last night, and it was so good. Oh, it was so good to talk to John Finley. I told him, I said, John, I, I thank you for everything you did. I said, I always refer to you as the pastor who tried to train me. And John, if I could be a third of the pastor of you, I would consider myself a, a moderate success. But John was so good. But John, he said, I wanted to keep going until I was 75. And he, um, in the latter days, after pastoring and mentoring and loving so many people, he, was, uh, he, he said, I want to give the rest of my life. He said, uh, a few years ago, he said, what I care about is the lost and the least. Don't care about my handicap and my golf score the lost and the least. And he was with the, uh, the waterfront rescue mission, just working with guys who uh, were, were coming back to the Lord. And then COVID came along and shut everything down, and they furloughed all the older types and all that. He said, I almost made it to 75. But then he said, my ministry now is a good ministry. He said, I go to all my kids' as, uh, Janice and I go to all my kids' as, grandkids' as ball games and concerts. We head up to these, and he said, I'm just pouring into the grandkids and doing what I can to encourage. And he said, that's just such a valid ministry. And I said, man, that is a valid ministry. Told him how I 
came across some of my grandpa's old sermon notes from 1958 and, and thought about grandpa and, and, and what grandparents can pour into their kids. And that's a valid, good thing. And Paul, in this circumstance, his ministry comes to a halt, but it does not come to a halt. And we need to understand uh, these things that are, are so good and, and um, what God does when we can say, these things that happened to me, it's, it's going to be a bad thing, turning into a good thing. Sermon this morning, for you and for me, is aimed at our perspective on adversity. Our perspective on adversity. Because it can hit us one way or it can hit us another way. One way is the world's way, which has many subplots, so like, uh, why did this happen to me? If only I had uh, dot, 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 or, or very many things like that. Or we can say, boy, God is behind these things. What's God doing? Just probably the last time I'll refer to, to, to John Finley, my pastor. But somebody told me, it said, I'd be going in for surgery at 6 o'clock, and, and there would be his little car chugging up the hill at my house at 530. I just want to pray with you before you go into surgery. And they say, John would always say, well, what do you think God's trying to do? And what's God showing you in this time of adversity? And that was always his question when things came along that, that were hard. Well, our sermon this morning is aimed at our perspective on adversity. What is your approach to life's circumstances? And is that approach in line with God's word? That's what we're going to think about this morning. Three points. One, the unfettered progress of the gospel. That's in verses 12 through 14. Second point, blessing mixed with adversity. That's in verses 15 through 17. And then finally, the one thing that gives meaning to everything else. And that's in verse 18. So first of all, the unfettered progress of the gospel. And in verses 12 through 14, He's writing. They know he's in prison. They've sent somebody to give him some relief and some funds and some things and and encouragement. So he's writing back to them. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, my Bible and yours probably have a little note. It can say, or brothers and sisters. He's talking, Adolfoy is the brothers. It's a plural. And it means brothers and sisters. So it's not like a, a man only thing. That's just how people just wrote back then. So, you know, don't say, well, I'm a, I'm a woman, so this doesn't apply to me then. <laughs> it applies to you. Um, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I want you to know family. I want you to know Christians. I want you to know church, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me? He's not going back in this instance to his days before Christ, when he was the one locking Christians up and and sentencing them to death. He's not going back to that in this case. He's talking about the immediate circumstance, which is adversity. Maybe there were people in that congregation, and maybe there are people in our congregation, and maybe there are pastors in this congregation that from time to time think that if they do everything right, there'll be no adversity in their life. They might have thought that then. Sometimes I can fall into that trap. But I did everything. Check, 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 check. 
So why isn't my kid dot, 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 or why isn't my wife dot, 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 or why isn't the financials balance sheet? I think, and he's saying, listen, I want to tell you, the things that have happened to me, and they knew what those things were, he says, these are really good things. Unspoken, and he talks about it later, it might end in death. Ultimately, it did. Uh, In this letter, People don't know, uh, there's a first imprisonment and a second imprisonment. They don't know if this was the final one uh, where he dies. And and, and smart people, like really smart people, smarter people than me, uh, can have an opinion on that. Uh, All we know is he is in jail and the threat of death is there. And ultimately, he did die at the hands of, of the government who did not like his message. But he's saying, these things that have happened to me have really happened to advance the gospel. It's part of his biography. You have a biography. You have stories to tell. You have a life that you are living. And you can even get to those things and you can say, these things that happened to me, dot, dot, dot. And the question, and we're going to get to this more in the conclusion, so I'll stop. But the question is, how do you interpret these things that have happened to you? That's going to be our question. He was fettered. Fetters were the, the uh, little stocks they put on their feet, the little chains, little circle chained up. He was fettered. He couldn't. But he says, I'm fettered. The gospel is unfettered. You can't chain up the gospel. and You can't chain up the Holy Spirit. You can't put the spirit in a bottle and stick a cork in it and wait for somebody else to pull it out and God to pop out and say, three wishes. Uh, you can't stop God, and you can't stop God's work. And you can lock us, you can, you can do anything you can, and you can't stop the work of God. People have tried, and they'll keep trying. A woman in a Solzhenitsyn book that I read, uh, just a brave young woman who died, uh, said they can't hang all of us, can they? And she kept her faith, and she stood up for the Lord. The unfettered progress of the gospel. It's part of his biography. You have your biography. And you are going to finish this sentence, what has happened to me, and you're going to finish it in a certain way. Gospel was not fettered. He said two things, two instances that that prove the gospel was not fettered and that there was something good that happened in his adversity. He said, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I got locked up. I got put in chains. They thought they were going to stop me going from place to place and telling about Jesus Christ and how the only hope that anybody ever has had is in Jesus. They locked me up. But you know what? By locking me up, there's a totally new audience for the gospel. The whole imperial guard knows about Christ because I was locked up. I said, what's that guy doing here? He's different than a common criminal. He's different than a political prisoner because I don't believe Paul was railing and railing on uh, on Nero or, or things at that time. Paul was talking even in prison. We, we see earlier examples of where he was locked up in the local jails where they were singing praises to God. What's he doing in here? 
He's different. Isn't he Jewish? But what's this Christ thing? That's not like the, the, the Jewish faith that I met. He kind of refers back to that, to, to all the Jewish scriptures, and he's a Jewish guy, but what's this Christ part of things? They're asking about him. They're hearing about Jesus Christ, and he's saying, what has happened to me, my fetters, my chains, my imprisonment has been for good because here's an audience that gets to hear about Jesus that might not have heard had I been free to go. I want you to notice something important here. In this case, he does not say, the whole imperial guard got on their knees and prayed the sinner's prayer and received Christ. He's not using that as a measure of success, the results. Other places he'll talk about, some people, even in in the Caesar's household, have become uh, believers. And he'll talk about that as a good thing. But he's saying the measure of success is not a physical result that you can submit to your denomination of X amount of people got saved, X amount of people got baptized. The, The success is Christ was communicated to people. And the Holy Spirit does the work, right? So he's talking about that as one good result. The next good result of his imprisonment is in verse 14. He says, most of the brothers and sisters of Afoy, the people, our brothers in Christ, the siblings, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, wow, I got locked up for my faith. I'm facing death for my faith. And it's counterintuitive, you think, and when people show up to bully and scream and think a mob can come and and influence and do all these things, you would think that that would quiet people because we're so afraid of the crowds. He's saying, no, counterintuitive. When that happens, that just makes the Christians grow stronger. Holy Spirit helps. They see Paul. They said, what's the worst case scenario? And I bet a lot of us have done that in our lives. We worry so much about the worst case scenario. As a church planter, oh, the worst thing would be if dot, 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 you know, somebody gets mad and goes. And if that ever happens, that's the death of this church. And you know, it's not. Whatever the worst case scenario is, you go through that and you go, that's not as bad as my imagination was that it would be. And people look and they see Paul locked up and God uses that as he's living a life that says things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And they're like, okay, we can do that. Jesus said something about if they didn't like the master of the house, what are they going to do to the servants? And we're the servants. We serve Jesus. And if they did this to Jesus, well, maybe it can happen to us. And all of a sudden, I'm not so afraid anymore because I see how it's playing out in Paul's life. And he says, most of the brothers are bolder now, and they can speak the word without fear. And that's a good thing. Think about your adversity. Think about 10 people you love. And you are 
nobody knows it's it's you know it, it, nobody knows what God's doing in the lives of people all the way up to their death. Nobody knows. Uh, you can't say with a certainty this person is saved, this person's not. But think about ten people who've said, I, I don't like this Christianity thing. I don't like this. And you love them. And, and, and with a reasonable certainty, you can say, I've, I've heard with their own words they reject. What would you be willing to go through? What adversity, if, you, if God said, I'm, I'm going to do things all different, I'm going to cut a deal with you, and I'm going to make you have pain, unimaginable pain, the worst pain, but the trade-off is I'm going to save so-and-so. The Bible doesn't work that way. But what would you go through if it did? Man, I can name ten people I love who seem as if they're on their way to hell. God, if I could make you a trade, I'll trade my life. Adversity. And Paul in this life is saying, I'm glad for the adversity because I see in the adversity good things are coming out of that. Again, I'm not saying God ever does that with people. So don't, don't misunderstand me. You can't cut a deal with God like that. Uh, it's all grace. But God does, we can say from this passage, God does use the things that we are the most afraid of that cause pain. And, and all things do work together for good for those who love God. And there will be a time in heaven where we go, man, that wasn't, maybe we'll, go, we'll do that. Maybe we'll just be so busy praising God. But we will, we can see at the end of our lives. How about that? And we see things spiritually and we go, I am glad for that pain because out of that pain came this good thing for God. And people have come to the Lord. It was worth it. The world's method, when they don't hear what they like, bullying and intimidation, shouting down. Uh, there's a reason why in our culture, a phrase I love these days, I, I wish I'd been smart enough to think about it and think it up myself, but you, talk, you hear about the cry bullies. <laughs> They're bullies, 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 but you say something else, then they cry. Then they come back, bully, 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 cry, cry, cry and won't hear, and there's a world's way of, of cry-bullying people, and you say something that people don't like, such as there is a God, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death, and all of a sudden, there is opposition. I don't want to hear that. And while they're cursing you out, they're covering their ears. And Paul is saying, what happened to the fellow Christians because of my imprisonment. They're not so intimidated and afraid of that worldly opposition anymore. And they're going to speak the truth in love now. And it's a good thing. Love the way that later on in one of his letters, Paul said, speaking the truth in love, dot, dot, dot. We go on, we spread the gospel. And boy, both elements can be there if you're a Christian. And you can not be afraid to say the truth. And because the Holy Spirit's in you, you don't have to say it as an enemy. You can even be a friend of those who persecute you. And you can even say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you can love them so much, you persist in prayer and perseverance. 
And Paul said, wow, I went to prison. The things that happened to me have been good. A whole new crowd, these people in the guard have heard about Christ. And these people who were a little scared, he says most of them. Notice he doesn't say all of them. He says most of them. Most of them now have a little more boldness to talk about the Lord. And the gospel goes on flowing throughout this world, unfettered, like the wind, Jesus said. The spirit blows where it will, and the gospel just keeps going. And you can put up a roadblock on me, but the gospel's going to keep going, and that's what matters. Then he talks about, in verses 15 through 17, this is kind of a puzzling part of the text. Blessing mixed with adversity, verses 15 through 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So some of these people who are more bold in speaking out, uh, some are preaching him or sharing the gospel, talking about the Lord. They're preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He's saying not every motive, even from people who are speaking truth, not every motive is godly. And we've learned from our J.C. Ryle book that even the good things we do have that taint. As long as we're in this earth living with these bodies, there's a a taint of sin in everything. There's there's no, uh, no pure, unadulterated good that we do in these bodies, and yet God uses Uh, all of our things to bring about good. Not every motivation is the right one. In verse 15 and 17, envy and rivalry, he says. And this is not question. This is clearly the words that God uh, breathed out to Paul to write. But we go, man, even back then? I mean, I... (laughs) I was rearranging the books on my shelf this week and all that, and I came across a lot of things that were interesting. I got this little pocket handbook of, of North American denominations, and it's got a little, and I'm like, man, <laughs> there's a lot of things that have spread out. Uh, boy, it'd be great to be back in those days when everything was just all unified and lovey-dovey and pure. Uh, well, I'm reading from this, maybe it wasn't even then. Uh, the seeds of that were there. They were just smaller, and, and they had to organize and reorganize. But there was some envy and rivalry. What's Paul talking about? He's not talking about what is known in uh, what we saw throughout Acts and what we see in Galatians, what they called the Judaizers who were coming and preaching a false gospel. Uh, They were coming back and they didn't like this Gentile thing and they they didn't like the grace part of it and they wanted uh, uh, an adherence to the law. And Paul in Galatians, he wrote, he wrote a letter to that church, and it wasn't the same as, as the tone that he has in this one. In that church, he says, who's lying to you? Who's bewitched you? What's going on? Didn't you see Jesus crucified? Why are you going back to try to work your way and be good enough to get to heaven now when you've seen that Jesus is the one who made it possible for you? He's not talking in this passage about that. One take on it is this. Listen to this. Bible scholar that I admire and like wrote this. 
he said, some issues of doctrinal significance must have been at stake. Without necessarily preaching heresy, such as we read about in Galatians, these individuals opposed the more distinctive features of Paul's gospel and sought to undermine his ministry to the Gentiles. Yes, men and women were being brought to a saving knowledge of Christ, and for that Paul rejoiced. But this evangelistic success was being used by some to subvert the apostles' authority and to establish a form of Gentile Christianity that was friendlier to Judaizing influences. It's no wonder they believed their efforts would add misery to Paul's sufferings. Paul's in jail. We're going to set it straight. We're moving in on his turf. Uh, We're going to come in and we're going to clear things up. And you know what? He's in jail and he can't do anything about it. And that makes us happy. There was some envy and some rivalry going on then. We can't put our finger on, on all of it. We know it was not, it was the gospel. But it was the gospel still in opposition to Paul. Various rises and falls of reaching people for the Lord. Church plants. Seminary students. There are little competitions among Christians in churches. There are little competitions among pastors. Uh, It's a family, right? And we have these little family rivalry things. And just, they're not bad when they're right. Old dad used to sit me down, and I hated this speech. He gave me this speech a few times. Now, Dave, because he wanted, he wanted me to get it. He, he was telling me the truth here. But he says, now, Dave, not every kid, even in the same family, has the same abilities. We just can't be jealous of each other. We have to do, like your brother Chris, he's good at sports. And, and uh, you and Dan are okay at sports, but Chris is really good at sports. And that's what, what God made him to do it. Dan, he's good musically. He can sing. And and going, you, um, 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 um. I'm like, say something, Dad. Say something, please. But um, you're supposed to laugh at that. Um, Because he found something. He said something. It was good. But it's like, it's right. There are ways even siblings kind of compete with each other. And even in God's family, we compare, we look. And what size is your congregation? And what... What's going here and what's God doing? And we have our little anecdotes and our swapping stories and and we get so worldly, so worldly. There was a guy planting a church and the head church thought they'd put enough money and time into him, I guess. And they kept saying, your little church plant, it's not growing the way it should. Look at our church. And, And when we planted our church and this and that, and it went on and on. And finally that guy just had to say, I gotta fight fire with fire. I gotta, I gotta, I know what's happening is we're sharing the gospel, we're loving people, and God's gonna do his work in his time. But these people are numbers, numbers, numbers. He finally crunched the numbers. And in their big city, they had X amount of people as members. In his little city, he had X amount of people as members, and he took that to him and he said, You have such a population to draw from, and your church is only this size. Look at my population. We're twice as big as you are. And that quieted them down. Because it got, you've got to get back to seeing it's God and these rivalries and these judgments of, 
of this or that or who's doing what. And Paul's in prison. And these people are going to move in and they're going to share the gospel, but it's going to be out of a wrong motive. And he can't do anything about that. But then he can dwell and he can look at these others. He says, others proclaim the gospel out of love, in verse 16, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And they're saying, Paul's not here, but I'm emboldened, and I'm going to do what Paul taught me to do. Paul taught me that Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross for my sins, and I'm forgiven. It's totally from grace. And Paul taught me that I need to share this message with people, and I'm going to do that out of love for Paul. And I know God has sidelined Paul. I don't know what the reason is, but God has done this, and so I'm going to pick up that slack. And they did their job, and like Paul, they spoke the truth in love. We're sinners. If we're Christians, we're saved sinners. And we're still prone to our natural rivalries and competitions. We all love a baseball team. We love it when these millionaires who we cheer for on the baseball team, when they say, it's not about the contract, it's not about the personal stats, I just want to win for the team. We go, yeah, yeah, that's the way to be. Um, Well, maybe they're that way and maybe they're not. And I don't know if anybody but Gordon, as soon as I said this player's name this morning, I was looking for a baseball illustration for for a particular reason today. But... um, uh, I mentioned this player's name, and Gordon's eyes lit up. He knew. You guys ever heard of Wally Pip? Wally Pip. You don't want to be Wally Pipped in this world. Wally Pip was a New York Yankee in the few years prior to Babe Ruth. I think he was the first Yankee to ever lead the league in home runs, and then he played on a team that had a guy named Home Run Baker, uh, who I'd never heard of, and then Babe Ruth joined the team, and Wally Pip was a part of the Yankees. Um, Wally Pip even poured into the younger players. And there was a younger player he was kind of teaching for when it was time for him to retire. But Wally Pip was sick one day. And the manager said, take the day off, take a couple aspirin, and we'll just let Lou Gehrig take your place. And Lou Gehrig played all those years over and over again. Wally Pip never got back in at that position. He was Wally Pip. And he said, those aspirin are the most expensive aspirin that anybody's ever in the history of mankind. Um, there's a graciousness. If he's really for the team, he's just happy that his team, the Yankees, are winning. But there's a rivalry that comes on, and we look and we say, who's taking my place? Who did the, who did the uh, church elders ask to do this ministry? Who's doing this? Who's, and that's not the way Paul said for it to play. It's, it's a sin when that happens. People do things out of rivalry, and, and, and Paul said, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Some people do it for the right reasons. But he gets into this fact. Even as sinners prone to our natural rivalries, he gets to our final point, which is this. What then? Verse 18. What then? Our final point. The one thing that gives meaning to everything else. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's saying, here's the biblical response. 
We don't know why people are doing. We just want the gospel to go forward. We're not going to slam on these people and cut. We're, we're going to say if the gospel is being proclaimed, that's what we're about. I meet with these three other pastors, um, Southern Baptists, Baptist leaners, good guys. I love, I love that Thursday meeting once a month with these guys. And we take turns. We, we each pick a book. And uh, some guy picked a book, and he's, he's, he pushed us, and that was good. Because an old guy like me that's been out of seminary for a long time needs to read a book like the one he recommended and talk about it. And we're different. So he picked this book called Covenantal and Dispensational Theologies, Four Views on the Continuity of Scripture. And it looks through four ways of, of trying to understand and put the Old Testament with the New Testament. There's covenant theology, what they, they call the four major views. Covenant theology, progressive covenantalism, progressive dispensationalism, and then dispensationalism. So my guy, Michael Horton, is, is, the, is the advocate for covenantalism. And that's the, we read an introduction, then we read that one. And that was our first one. And everybody had to say two things they like about the system, two things they don't like, and if they are that, if they weren't that, what they would be. Um, so we got done with that first one. I said, it's all downhill from here, boys, because <laughs> that's the one. Um, so we talked, but what I liked is we got to this third section. We're going to get to that next week. I read the chapter ahead of time or next month. A guy named Daryl Bach, who's a seminary professor at Dallas Seminary, on progressive dispensationalism. But here's what he says. He says about that, and this is important for us in this text, so come back and listen to this. Every writer said this as they're explaining the way they understood Scripture to best be understood with old and new together. He said... There are many judgments being made by all of us about what seems most coherent. This is very much an in-house family discussion within evangelicalism. This needs to be remembered since what we hold in common is in many ways far more important. And we can sit as Christians and we can have what we call an intramural debate over various things. But understand... uh, the core Christianity, what is the gospel? Now, just because a church says it's Christian, well, let's go back a little bit. Just the people that say, oh, every religion, it's all the same. It's all the same way, to, many ways to God and all that. And I came up here, and this one group wanted me to be part of their group. And they were doing some good things. For instance, people were defacing um, uh, Jewish cemeteries. Other people were doing other things. And they said, we as a group, we stand against that. And I said, I'm against all that too. I'd be with you on that. Except their Thanksgiving service, they have one guy walking down with the Koran. Then they have one guy walking down with you know, Buddha stuff. They have one guy walking down with, with this religion and that religion. And they said, and you can be the guy this year. You can walk down the aisle holding the Bible up. And I said, I can't do that because... You're, you're reducing the Bible to all those same things. And I like so much of what, and there's so much we do have in, in common on the one thing, but on the most important thing, who is Jesus Christ? How can a person be right with God? What's the difference between heaven and hell? Uh, we're different. And so I support you in condemning defacing anybody's cemetery for any reason. I support you in this and that. 
but I'm not going to reduce the Bible to say it's equal. Even within Christianity, there are some groups we can work with because it's the gospel. Other groups have gone so far from we don't want to say and give the illusion that this works-oriented branch or this works-oriented group denomination is legit. What makes it legit? Jesus Christ is our only way of salvation. Jesus Christ as the substitute, as the one who took our sins upon himself and forgave us. Then we can figure out, and, and some of these, that they get to a different, they don't do covenantal baptism like we do. They do immersion like, like all my, my, my parents and family did. And, and, and I can say, well, I think this, you guys are off here and all that. I raised my hand in seminary one time. I thought I was like a real smart guy. I said, what prevents us from having covenant baptism? And then after a person uh, has this time where they personally confess their sins, then we come along and, and, and immerse them in believer's baptism. What prevents us from doing that? And like a few of the students looked up like they thought I was a smart guy too. And the professor went, <laughs> and then everybody laughed at me and I went, oh, okay. Why is that a bad question? But we can get along on baptism. Uh, MacArthur can, can be buddies with Scroll, and they can have these good discussions. We can talk about that as long as the gospel itself, Jesus Christ alone, uh, as the substitutionary payment to a, as a propitiation against the wrath of God that's rightly ours, and our faith in Jesus alone, we can get along. We are uh, different the, the way we play out. Now, the Brazilian congregation, same denomination, all that. Christian Missionary Alliance, a little different on some things. But where it matters, we are lockstep. And I tell you, I love that pastor, yay. I love going to the Chinese church and, and, and seeing and, and singing some of those old songs. And, and Ann and I were talking about how, how they do it. So in the Brazilian church, if you go, and, and they'll sing some songs in Portuguese, like the verses, and then they'll go English, and then back to, in, 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 uh, in the Chinese church, you want to sing it in English, it's there. If you want to sing it in Mandarin, it's there. We all sing at the same time. It's like, a, a, it's wonderful. And I love singing in English since I don't know Mandarin, but I love hearing the Mandarin voices and language, and it just reminds me that God is a God of all people in this world, and we have something in common. <coughs> And the message is the gospel. Paul said, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In that I rejoice. (coughs) Application, conclusion. A couple of quick points just as a summary. And then we'll, we'll uh, go to the table. But how do we look at this section? Paul uses that phrase, what has happened to me? My question is, what has happened to you? How has God used it to advance the gospel? Or how might God use it to advance the gospel? We would like for our suffering, our adversity, to be meaningful. Think of those Koreans that were killed by ISIS. Remember them all down there in their little orange suits and people behind them? And they're singing praises to the Lord as they died. 
uh, that's a meaningful, that, that, that was a powerful picture that uh, uh, those ISIS uh, killers meant it for evil, but God even meant it for good. And we'll be in heaven worshiping God. Uh, they just picked up right where they were left off, mid-sentence. They're praising God as their throat slid, and they just finished praising when they got to heaven. And boy, that's a death that was good for, for somebody like me to see and, and encourage me. We want a funeral sermon or something that we do to, to, to be worth it. We have our adversity. Approach adversity a little different. Somebody used to tell a story about the two boys that had to clean the stables. You've heard this because I told it before. I love this story. And boy, those stables are just filled with all the horse manure, everything in there. And one boy goes into that stable. He's complain, 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 complain. Got to do this work. Got to do this job. Complain, complain, complain. And uh, the other boy, he's just whistling while he works. He's just shoveling away. And somebody says, boy, why aren't you complaining? He says, boy, with all this horse manure in here, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And he's just got to shovel through all that to get to the pony. And you think about uh, our approach as Christians. Boy, this adversity that God sends from time to time in our lives, you see, there's something good if Romans 8.28 is true. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What has happened to me is dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank, and if you can't do it with your heart, just do it with your head in line with Scripture and pray that your heart and wait for your heart to catch up. Good result. Boldness to declare the gospel. Another point from this sermon, and I I hit hit it once, the success of the gospel is not in actual conversions. The success of the gospel is the proper biblical delivery of the gospel while the Spirit does the work. There was a preacher who used to say this. He said, my job is not to save people. My job is not to convert. He said, he said I'm like a waiter. And God has this wonderful entree for people. My job is not, I can't do God's job. I'm not the chef. My job is to get it from the kitchen to the table without messing it up and, and, and mixing it all up. And that's my job. Our job as believers is not to create a new way of salvation. Our job as believers is just to say, I'm going to get so familiar, and I'm going to be, and then I can take the gospel to people without messing it up. It's God's entree. It's their salvation. And my job isn't even to stand there and try to force feed them. My job is to just keep delivering the word without messing it up. We can't even do to people like we could do with our kids when they were little. You're going to sit here at that table until you eat every last little bit. All we do as people who deliver the word is we shake our heads in sadness at all that good food that's going to waste because people aren't eating it. But it's good food and it's solid food. And we, we do that. Don't be distracted by petty rivalries. That's one thing he says in here. Uh, the, the Paul approach is good. Don't get sucked in by Christian celebrity culture. Uh, the, the church mimics the world too much in, in, in celebrity culture. Check yourself. 
What is the gospel and its significance in your own life? From what does everything else flow? Where is, what's the pinnacle of your Christian experience? We're tempted to say this, we're tempted to say that. The, the thing is the gospel in your life, your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And you focus on that and you live on that and everything else flows and there's a manual and there's ways that we know to live. We catch ourselves just, just living more godly as, as time goes on. But the source, the number one thing in your spiritual life is your relationship with God made right as you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So final illustration, just talking about the suffering, talking about Paul. I thought about this. I was like a young man in here that I know when I was his age, I read everything I could get my hands on. And the TV broke and dad goes, just a bunch of garbage in there. It's not good for our family. We're not getting it fixed. <laughs> so we were like the no TV family. Uh, we could go to grandpa's and watch TV. Um, and, and Dad was, we were fine with that. Dad would go with us. We watched uh, Gunsmoke and all those good things, you know, from that era. But we just didn't have that in our, our family uh, for many years. And so it was just like if you wanted stories, you could listen to a ball game on the radio because that was a story being played out in real time. Or you read, and you read, and you read, and you read. My parents would get a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. And it was talking about persecution of Christians around the world. And I can never forget when I was a kid and they had a picture of this guy somewhere in the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, was there behind the Iron Curtain. Maybe he was Romania. Somewhere under communism where they were burning Bibles and, and putting people in prison because they weren't going along with that system. And there was a man. I was shocked as a kid to see a picture of a man and they had cut his tongue off. He was a man whose tongue was cut off and he could not speak anymore. He'd been in prison for his faith in Jesus and while in prison, he would kept talking about Jesus to fellow inmates and guards. And they said, we're tired of hearing all this talk. We're going to make it so he can't talk anymore. And they cut his tongue off. And Voice of the Martyrs put a picture of him and, and a little guy like me stumbled on that magazine and read it. <laughs> Caption was something to the effect of this. Even while speechless, he still speaks. And he spoke to me that day in Iowa when I read about him, and I'm sure to countless others. You can put a Christian in fetters, but the gospel is unfettered. You can render a Christian speechless physically, but the gospel still speaks. And God will do God's work. And your adversities are serious and they're sad and I'll weep with you and then when it's my turn you come and weep with me but we understand that even those things we weep over as Christians are something that in the mind of God which is good and wonderful that works everything out for good we know there is a good thing coming even in the hard things closing sentences what's going on in your life who is sovereign over all events. What matters most of all? The quicker you line your life up under God's loving sovereignty and go beyond mere accepting of your circumstances 
with celebrating your circumstances, or at least celebrating the God who's in charge of your circumstances, the more at peace you will be. And we're going to get that way more and more and more all the way to heaven. Did not Jesus say himself, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for uh, including this portion of scripture in, in the Bible so that we could have that and know it's from you and, and be taught and encouraged by it. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive from the Lord what I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way also he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, this is a... Uh, table that we come to, Jesus